Step into the realm of positivity and inspiration with our special collaboration. Featuring Chris, the vibrant host of Coffee on the Couch. Join us as we dive into uplifting conversations, exploring diverse stories that add warmth and joy to our collection. From artists to individuals with compelling life tales, Chris's engaging interview style brings a unique perspective to positive news for you. So join in and celebrate the bright side of life and the richness of human experiences with us. Welcome. Today's guest is someone who's been in ministry for about 26 years, which is a milestone in today's modern instant gratification world, especially when considering the fact that we live in a me-first-centered world. So join us on this journey with our guest today. Coffee on the couch will be starting in five, four, three, two, one, and we're live. Welcome back to another inspiring episode of Coffee on the Couch. Today, we're honored to have a distinguished guest, a man whose unwavering commitment to his calling has left an indelible mark on the communities he served. With 26 years in pastoral ministry, our guest has navigated the highs and lows, providing spiritual guidance and support to join us as we delve into the extraordinary journey of Pastor Dale Prolux. Uh, welcome, Dale. Hey, Chris. Um, and uh, I have a confusing last name. It's French-Canadian. And so the L and X are silent. And so it's pronounced crew, like P-R-U-E, <laughs> or the nickname for the Prudential is the crew. But I always knew oh, I okay. was a telephone solicitor because they always mispronounced my name. But the drill sergeant <laughs> and weren't good at pronouncing it uh, either. So I yeah. think they called you the cruel or prulix. If people have lived near French Canadians, then they kind of tend, that's about the only way they know the right Oh man, that's funny. You know, now that you say that, I told myself I was going to ask you before we recorded how you said your last name, and I totally forgot. <laughs> and then my first name so. is Dale, which is not an especially common name, and it can be for a woman as much as for a man. So I'll also get called Dave by people, right? So because Dave really? is a lot more common than what Dale is. And if they don't really know oh, me, man. you know, like they just met me once, they'll be like, hey, Dave. And I'm like, no, it's Dale. <laughs> oh, geez. They're like, buddy, it's an L, not a V. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's great. Well, that's okay. My last name, I everywhere I go, I have to spell it too because it's Lafreniere. Right. Yeah. Or in the the you know, the French or French style, it's more Lafreniere. Yeah. So, but <laughs> so it's funny. I I get that part at least there. So, but um, so so Dale, I thought we'd uh we'd kind of do a quick little how we know each other. Um, and uh, like we were talking be before recording, um, our connection is actually Mission E four. Yeah. So do you wanna? Talk maybe a little bit about that in a short bit. Yeah. So, you know, we definitely met each other through Mission E4. And more so than we know each other well, we know a lot of um, people in common well. And I think mm -hmm. that's always a great way to get to know someone is if you and the <laughs> other person are closely related to people that you hold in high regard. It's probably like about mm -hmm. one of the best introductions that you can have to someone else. So I've yeah. been... Um, involved with Mission E4 since um, 2007, 
when my wife mm-hmm. and I became members at Pilgrim Covenant Church in Lunenburg. And one of the things that, you know, we'll get into into my sort of journey of faith and journey in ministry was it was a period when I had left full-time pastoral ministry and it started a second career in human social services full-time. Mm. Went back to Fitchburg mm-hmm. State and got a counseling degree and a certificate in nonprofit management. So we really came to Pilgrim Covenant Church to be members of a church mm. um, as I was not <laughs> in pastoral ministry at that point. And that's where we learned of Mission E4 and my family uh, and I, my wife and my oldest daughter in particular, were, were pretty heavily involved with Mission E4 um, for a number of years as Pilgrim Covenant Church had a really close ministry relationship, you know, with Mission E4. Yeah. Yeah. That, no, that's great. And um, yeah, they've, uh, they, they've certainly been an influence in my life as well. Um, I have for close to a decade, I was uh, in some capacity in ministry with them. Mm. Um, and then the latter years, I was actually on staff with them. Wow. So that was really cool. And so it's a funny aside for sure that I think sometimes when I think of youth ministry, um, I got paid to go to the movies with kids a lot of times. There you go. <laughs> so, you know, um, so it's funny stuff like that. Or got paid to go do, like, we went to one, one weekend, we went to, uh, what was it, uh, the the rock area out in Blackstone or Black, oh, yeah. uh, what, Prism something or Is it like Satan's, oh, Satan's Purge or something like that or Devil's Purge or, or is that something oh, different? Okay. No, it's something with a P. It's like a rocky area you yeah. go through, or check maybe out. It's, maybe it's like, a chasm, maybe. Yeah, something like that. Did, but I, I always thought to myself, I'm like, we, I'd be in the moment. I'm like, man, I'm getting paid to do this. Yeah. And I'm just here to enjoy it. Well, So it's kind of a funny I, moment. I can tell you from decades of experience, it's a great blessing to get paid for your life's work to have the privilege you know, of doing mm-hmm. ministry. So for anyone mm-hmm. that's considering a call to ministry at any point in your, you know, your life journey, it, it does, has never gotten old for me as a real privilege. <laughs> Did you yeah. know, Chris, of the connection of Randall Long, uh, Scott's brother uh, and Taryn's uncle to Pilgrim Covenant Church? Uh, yeah, so I knew Ran, Randy pretty well. Um, I, I actually... Funny story, when I first met them, I thought Taryn was Randy's kid, though. Okay. And then over time, um, Taryn or Scott were like, um, do you not? Like, I think it was Taryn, like, no, no, Scott's my dad. Like, look at my face. Look at his yeah. face. You know? so-, so that was my connection with them. But, yeah, no, I knew Randy. And uh, I didn't really know his grandfather. Yeah. But I knew Bev. Yeah, uh, I, knew, was... I knew Don fairly well also because when I was a pastor at the Ashburnham Community Church, he was at the People's Evangelical Congregational mm. Church in um, South Ashburnham. So I actually met yeah. the father, Donald, before I met Scott or Randall. So Randall oh, had really? a nearly 30-year relationship with Pilgrim Covenant Church where he was a yeah. youth pastor, an associate pastor, a worship leader, an interim pastor. So he did pretty much everything here 
before um, he and Heidi went on the missions field as missionaries. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a, yeah, and that was a good bit. They were over there because I remember when we sent them off and, uh, um, that I think was about 10 when years, I, I think it was about 10 years yeah. that Randy and Heidi served together as missionaries in India prior yeah. to, um, you know, prior to Heidi's death. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and actually my first connection was Bev, uh, mm-hmm. Don's ex, I guess you would say ex-wife, but, um, <clears throat> Bev was the church. I got my first real foundation at. And before I went to church there, I was actually an unbeliever. And I, um, I always thought that Christians were do-gooders and they were just trying to tell you how to live your life. And I didn't, my only experience with church was weddings and funerals. And, um, it, when I went to Bev's church, it, uh, it changed things and started me on a positive trajectory. And when I was at Mission E4, Oh boy, that was like hitting the ground running, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, I didn't know Bev especially well. I did meet her a few times and I was I was able to attend her funeral and certainly yeah. a real servant, uh, you know, minister of God. Oh, yeah. So that must have been her storefront church in Winchenden where you first were becoming a believer. Yeah, it was. She was a real hot ticket, you know? <laughs> so, but um, yeah, that no, was good. So, uh, yeah, so I thought we'd get right into the questions. Um, so, reflecting on 26 years in pastoral ministry, Dale, as you celebrate 26 years in pastoral ministry, can you take us through the journey from your early days in North Hadley to your current role? What have been the defining moments that shaped your path? Yeah, so um, I was raised devout Roman Catholic, you know, and being French Canadian, that's not surprising. And my wife and I are two of the very few Protestants that are, you know, in our extended family. Um, I, we met as undergraduates uh, at St. Lawrence University in rural mm-hmm. northern New York, where I'm from. And so I was go- going to be a lawyer, uh, and I was majoring in government, and I had to do a class called Law and the Family. And we were required mm-hmm. to do volunteer work as a part of the course. And that was mm-hmm. really my first experience as a sophomore with volunteer work. And I really got into that heavily. I was doing about four different volunteer ministries while a college student. And I was minoring in religion. And so initially, my call to ministry was the more I did volunteer work, you know, the less <laughs> in studying religion, the less I was, I was feeling called to, you know, going on to law school. And so I just started dating my wife, Christine, who's now my wife of 34 years. And oh, wow. I was like, well, what would you think about being married to a lawyer instead of a lawyer, a minister? And she's like, well, that'd be cool. So she was receptive. <laughs> and we just started visiting yeah. um, Protestant churches. And at that point, the congregational church felt like a good sort of contrast to like the hierarchy mm-hmm. of the Catholic church. And my pastor had gone to Andover Newton in um, Newton Center. And so I knew I wanted to be a pastor. I knew that school was really focused on training pastors. Uh, my wife also wanted to go to graduate school to be a special ed teacher. And Boston gave you know a number of different schools. So she yeah. ended up going to BU for special ed while I went to Andover Newton. 
and I was a, a student minister. You do like field education uh, in, in yep. Belmont Center uh, for two years. And then I thought I'd like to take two years to do my last year of seminary and pastor a small church. So that was where mm-hmm. I was hired at the North Hadley Congregational Church. I was only 25. Uh, so oh, wow. the kid, uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm 56 yep. now. It's been quite a while since anyone's called me the kid. You know, they were mostly <laughs> old enough to be my parents or my grandparents age. And then I graduated from seminary and our first, our oldest daughter was born and, you know, we, we had bills, student loans. And so I <laughs> yep. did a full-time church. And so one of the couples out in North Hadley said, well, our former church in Ashburnham, <coughs> the Ashburn Community Church, they're looking for a pastor and that's a full-time job. So came to this area then in 1994 uh, and I pastored for 13 years in Ashburnham and kind of had five and a half years where I wasn't <coughs> in pastoral ministry at all. And then uh, Pilgrim Covenant was between pastors, so they invited me to be the interim, which I said, well, you know, this is a great part-time job. Our oldest daughter had started college. We had no money saved to pay our share of college. <laughs> so I ended yeah. up pastoring a small congregational church quarter-time bivocationally in Greenfield. Um, so I was mm-hmm. working like Monday through Friday in human social services. Sundays was my day to get to be a pastor all day. Um, and then gave a year's notice, came back, said I was going to come back to Pilgrim Covenant Church as a member uh, for like the beginning of 2020. Well, the pastor mm-hmm. gave like notice as well, and we both ended at the same time. So they said, well, will you be our interim pastor again? And so came yep. back the second time. So I had been the interim pastor here over two stints for a couple of years. And with COVID, there weren't a lot of people looking to move. It was about the, a fourth <laughs> of the profiles yep. for pastors that you'd normally have. So they asked me if I'd consider, you know, being the full-time permanent pastor, um, mm. which I said, yes, I felt led by God as well. And so um, it was uh, March of 2021 that I then returned to full-time pastoral ministry. So I kind of had that my first two churches, I was young when I started, like 25 mm-hmm. and 27. My uh, last two churches, I was really not so young when I started, you know, more like 48 and 54. (laughs) And I do think that being kind of in a different season of life and ministry, I think I had more patience and I think I had more enjoyment Mm -hmm. from ministry. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so I said to my wife, well, the church is different or am I different? Because I'm really enjoying it a lot more, you know, sort of midlife. Just, well, I think it's some of both. You know, the churches are a little different churches, uh, but you're also in a different place than where you were when we were younger. Mm. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Because, you know, in your 20s, we're still babies, right? I mean, I'm, I'm only 35, but gosh, my 20s seemed like so long ago. So, but, uh, no, that's, um, that's good. Did you have anything more to say to that? Or was that where, was that, uh, yeah, I think kind of related to that, um, as a young pastor, I tried to change things too much, too fast. And so you Mm -hmm. sort of learn from experience. Well, that was not especially effective. And, you know, you, you still want to work with a church to be making 
positive changes or, you know, growing more faithful <clears throat> to Christ as the head, or even if you never change anything, things don't stay fresh. They tend to get stale. Right. You know, even if it's something yep. good, eventually it tends to lose its freshness. Um, yep. But you kind of learn to have a better pace and or a better process where more patiently mm. you try to get other people on board and involved. And two, you know, they have their ideas and feedback and often it being a collaborative effort comes up with a yep. better product, you know, than the pastor by themselves would come up with unilaterally. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, the hubris of being young, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and there are blessings um, and strengths with being young, of course. And, like, most yeah. revivals often are from young, you know, Christians. Um, you mm-hmm. know, there are blessings of youth, which can be energy, you know, excitement, enthusiasm, maybe a lot of ease. But I also think, too, youth uh, are more likely to be more maybe entrepreneur, you know, and, and not be like, well, yep. we tried it and it didn't work or, <laughs> you know, it hasn't yep. been done that way before. I think sometimes youth might be willing to be more bold risk takers, you know, yep. sometimes as we age. Um, we might not be as bold risk takers as we might be in our, you know, younger years. For sure. I mean, even just in the level of, uh, so 2021, um, I was in mass. That's, you know, cause I grew up in mass. Uh, I now live in Maine, but, uh, I had, I had been putting, put in contact with, um, my now wife. Um, from eHarmony mm. and we uh, I'd never been to Maine before um, but we had talked for a while and I was really engaged with the conversations and with her and um, things were going in a positive direction so I said to myself well if not now then when mm. you know um, I'm single I have no attachments I have nothing holding me down I'll uh, I'll go check it out for a weekend, and I was up there. And go figure, the first day I was there was the church's potluck at the pastor and wife's house, where half the church was there because it's mm. a small church. So I met half the church first day in Maine, first day meeting my now wife, <laughs> and got rampant fire questions all night. Where are you from? What do you do? Why are you up here? When did you meet? How did you meet? <laughs> so, and uh, and then Saturday we hung out and we were by ourselves and uh, I wasn't supposed to meet the kids, but I did. Mm. And that turned out well. And then Sunday, Sunday, there was a family reunion that hadn't met for like three years. Mm-hmm. So I met all their, all her extended family first weekend up there first weekend seeing her meet like in person and you know i'm like by the time i left them one of the guys uh, one of her relatives was like so what do you think you you come back i'm like oh for sure so but all that to say i was younger and no commitments no attachments mm-hmm. i was like all right let's let's do it you know so, um, 
but oh, what a ride it's been! I'll tell you. Um, that, that was quite the weekend. Yeah, yep. And uh, honestly, I don't think I would have done anything differently if I had to do it over again. Mm. Maybe not take the back roads because it was like nine hour drive. But wow, yeah. <laughs> but you know, um, that's the only thing I would change. <laughs> it's a blessing so. not to have regrets. Yep, yep, <clears throat> and um, it sure is. I mean, obviously, you know, we're we're human, so we ha- we at some point in life we do have regrets and some things pop up, but but uh. You, you work for it and as they say when you're going through hell you don't stop you keep going mm. so um, but uh no um yeah it's really been a blessing and had i not taken the chance of the thought process of like if not now then when or mm. you know i can do it you know who knows where i'd be today i don't think i'd be doing this because this was actually well not not specifically the podcast but writing doing this that was actually advice from my wife because mm. she saw that i had a strength for writing and she was like you gotta you gotta check it out you gotta lean into that and i was like you know i like writing i can do it i i don't know you know and i just which goes to show well, you know, you've been married for what did you say, thirty-four, 34 years? years? Yeah, and, yeah. And so talk about um, ministry. Um, my, when you have a godly spouse, I learned a long time ago to trust. You know that God doesn't just speak to me; God speaks to my wife as well. And God has yep. been very gracious in confirming calls to me. You know, in my wife, such that yeah. I've come to really trust that if God calls me to something that he will confirm it in her, you know, as mm. she seeks to be faithful and obedient, you know, to God yep. and, scripture and the leading of the Holy Spirit. For sure. Yeah. And I can tell you right now, I mean, my wife has certainly called me out on the carpet at times and on some things in private, but you know, the, we'll be talking about something and she'll, she'll be like, you know, uh, X, Y, Z in part wisdom. And I'm like, um, yeah, yeah I, I, I tend to be, be right. I, I tend to be a little overly <laughs> sensitive when it comes to my wife. Um, but at the same time, even though I have to work on my overly sensitive feelings, I certainly want her to feel that, you know, if she believes that I need a gentle correction, you know, or rebuke, <laughs> right. That, yep. that, that she can share that with me, that I'm going to be receptive to, yep. you know, hearing her out. I'm a really strong extrovert and my wife is a really strong introvert. And so when she mm, comes okay. to me with something, it takes a lot. So she said to me, you know, as an introvert, it's hard for me to come to you and address a concern with you. But what yep. I do, if you're not open to listening and hearing me, I'm not going to be very likely to do that again mm. going forward. Yep. You know, so it was good that she said that to me at that moment because I was able to say, yes, I, I thank you. You know, I appreciate that for you, this is not an easy yep. thing to do. And it takes a lot for you to get to that point. And yeah, I want to be receptive and so that you feel listened to and encouraged in a similar situation to say something, you know, going forward. For sure. For sure. It's that communication, right? The two-way communication, you know. 
And I think uh, that's one thing I've noticed in the last, so we're coming up on two years being married. And um, that's one thing that I have really noticed is the importance of proper communication and effective communication. So, yeah, we were, we were married very young at 21 and 22. In a lot of ways, yeah. we really kind of, you know, we're able to grow up together and mature together. Yeah. Um, and God was gracious that we both really became born again believers after we were married, but we did mm. like marriage work after about five years of marriage. And we had kind of rare infrequent fights, like maybe once every three months prior to that, but they were hurtful and destructive and they weren't productive. <laughs> yeah. And we didn't really have the tools to really disagree in a more mm. say, biblical or healthier or, you know, mature way. And that kind of got us on a path where, we got much more, um, you know, tools around healthy biblical communication, conflict resolution. And those are kind of tools that you really can use in all relationships, you know, and organizations, including churches. Yep. And so I've long, whether I was working in a, you know, secular ministry um, or in the church setting, wanting to try to be growing healthier in communication and conflict resolution lots of organizations mm. and lots of churches and lots of couples are yeah. don't have very good and effective and loving you know communication and conflict resolution yeah it's one thing that uh, i think to some degree is slept on um until you run through it and then you're like oh boy but uh uh yeah so we'll uh we'll get to Next question. Um, the call to ministry. You mentioned being drawn back into pastoral ministry after a period in human social services. Can you share the pivotal moment or calling that led you back and how it impacted your understanding of your vocation? Yeah, so I had worked in my second career full 14 years full time in human social services. So it was really good ministry opportunities. I was a case manager with people that were severely mentally ill in supported housing, so to live like independently in the community. I had been a, um, a sergeant in the Army Reserves in my youth, and so I worked as a case manager with homeless veterans in Worcester. I was able then when I finished my counseling degree to be the clinical manager in the organization working with veterans. And I was an executive director in affordable assisted living. So they were really good um, opportunities to serve. And especially when I was able for eight years to then work bivocationally, you know, as a pastor as well, you know, I was able to kind of scratch those itches of preaching the gospel and teaching the Bible and discipleship and evangelism and outreach, not, which are not so much what you can do in a secular, you know, nonprofit. Uh, even right. though they had good missions and purposes. And really, when I was talking about earlier, Christine, my wife, uh, God really kind of confirming his calls through her. I was at the point where um, I was starting to look for employment as the president and CEO of a nonprofit. And my wife said, well, I'm concerned with how much you work and how tired you are. <laughs> And it concerns me that you are talking about taking on something even bigger. And mm. I don't always hear my wife the first time she tells me something, but <laughs> it, 
you know, I'll generally sort of reflect on it over time and get to a point where I can hear, you know, what she was saying to me. And so when the Pilgrim Covenant Church and we were meeting, I was meeting with um, Bill, who was the chairman of the search committee, and it was kind of like early in COVID. So we were meeting with each other outdoors at Cumberland Farms in Westminster, you know, talking about <laughs> me being open to considering uh, coming on as the permanent full-time pastor. And we're in a season of life where our kids are in their 20s, and we now have two young granddaughters. And I was really feeling, you know, entering a new season of ministry, you know, better work-life balance, being the full-time pastor of a small church versus, you know, being an executive director of an assisted living and working part-time as a bivocational pastor. And then initially, so we owned a house in Westminster, and it'd be selling our house and moving into the parsonage in Lunenburg because that's a big part of the compensation is the housing being provided. Right. And initially right. my wife is like, I can't tell you how much I don't want to move. And I was like, wow, that's problematic because I'm feeling very far <laughs> now. And I kind of see this as my, um, you know, the way God's providing out, but kind of learned after a lot of marriage, arguing and debating is not real effective at, changing someone's mind and certainly not your spouse's. So I said, well, and we've done this in the past. I said, well, will you agree to pray about this? Both of us pray about it over the weekend. And then on Monday, let's touch base and see if we felt like we had any direction from the Lord on the matter. Mm -hmm. And she, the next day said, I have complete peace with selling the house and moving into the parsonage in Lunenburg. And I was like, well, that was part of 180. And she said, well, she goes, I knew I had to agree to pray about it when you asked me to. She goes, my heart really wasn't into it. I, I wanted to say no, but I knew that would be disobedient. So I said yes, sort of out of a sense of this is what God would have me do. But, she goes, but once I started praying on it, God gave me immediate peace with selling our house and moving back into a parsonage. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's uh, and that's uh, it's a lot of good points you touched on there is. But uh, I can agree. I don't always hear my wife the first time. <laughs> and sometimes it takes a, are you listening? Mm-hmm. Hello? <laughs> so, um, but um, yeah, no, prayer does wonders. And um, yeah, no, it's, uh, it is quite the quite the thing uh you know when you hear from god and you get that direction it's like okay look uh this is where i feel we're being directed this is where i feel god's calling us um let's let's hash it out let's see where what sticks so um all right so ministry in different settings having served in four churches each with its unique community, what insights can you offer about adapting your ministry to different congregations and the challenges and joys it brought? Yeah, I'd say just kind of one major related point is that as a pastor who is a preacher and you're preaching, you know, in your church, you Mm -hmm. are preaching to that group of believers that God has brought together in that specific church. And Mm. one of my friends who was part of my church in Ashburnham 
for like a five-year period when I was in my late 20s and early 30s. He's now been attending here, you know, for like the last year plus when I'm in my 50s. And so he's comparing and contrasting the church and my ministry at that point (laughs) and my church and ministry, you know, in this point. And he's sort of struck with, well, you're a lot different than you were. You're a, and he kind of says like <laughs> you're a lot more evangelistic, you know, in your oh, wow. than you were then. And I said, well, and his name's Don, and we've been friends yep. for 29 years. And I was like, well, yep. Don, part of that is God's worked in me over these last 29 years, uh, but yep. two, they're two different churches. And <laughs> yeah, really, this church, that's a style that they're receptive to. And, you know, really kind of speaks to them. It's not really challenging to them. They really kind of expect that sort of preaching style. The church mm-hmm. in Ashburnham, it was a mainline Protestant church. I was really working for renewal. It would have been much too much for them at that point if I right. had been that evangelistic. I was preaching the gospel. I was preaching, you know, knowing Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I was, you know, preaching the Bible as the Word of God. But stylistically, you know, that church, you know, preaching to, again, and so preaching to different congregations, what's the message that God has for them, you know, and also then even stylistically, um, my sermons now in this church, they're open to longer (laughs) sermons than that church was. So, you know, the sermon length even can depend upon the setting of the church of what is sort of their expectations for you know, preaching. So that's just one example. But even then, what ministries you're doing, obviously, that's going to vary from church to church, um, you know, in discerning, like, well, what does this church need to grow or to be more faithful or to experience yeah. renewal? And so you really have to, as the pastor, discern that with the individual church, you know, that you are serving in as the pastor. For sure. For sure. Um yeah, different churches, different dynamics, because uh, there's a big difference between, um, you know, Baptist and, say, what's another one? Um, well, if you say like, Baptist versus charismatic, right? So there a you conservative go. Baptist church and a very Pentecostal charismatic church, pa- the pastor of each of those churches are going to vary quite a bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In a lot of ways, you know, in how they do ministry with the church. For sure. If you you swap the pastors into the opposite two churches, probably wouldn't go very well. Oh, it'd be a train wreck. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, there are those big differences for sure. Uh, And even like, I don't particularly no for sure but you would know better than i would the difference between a southern baptist church and a second baptist church well even among baptists there is quite a bit of variety and for example there are baptist churches that are much more just one example would be much more calvinist and there are also ones that are literally called free will (laughs) churches and so they're much more arminian you know in their theology Mm. So it's not the case that, you know, there's no differences from one Baptist church to another. And like you said, right, there were Southern right. Baptists and there were Northern Baptists. And the American Baptist churches are the Northern Baptists who are much more mainline Protestant, whereas yep. Southern Baptists overall, you know, tend to be 
a more conservative evangelical denomination. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so it's, uh, it's funny. Uh, so the church I'm attending right now is actually a second Baptist church. And um, it is, I like the church. It's really nice. Uh, it's smaller than the church I was at in Mass, but that's also the dynamics and the demographics of the area. So, you know. Yeah, so Chris, is the name there. of the church Second Baptist? It is. It, well, yeah. it's uh, it's. Well, it's the denomination. The church, uh, the name of the church is actually Bering Baptist Church. Okay. So it's uh, technically in Bering, but it's between Baileyville and Callis. And is it part so, of a Baptist denomination? I believe so. I think it's part of the Baptist, uh, the main Baptist association or something. Mm -hmm. so. That's the thing too. Baptists will be part of different associations, you know, as well as denominations. So, you know, yep. and there's, there's Baptist churches that are independent Baptist churches where they're not part of a denomination. Right. Right. Yeah. Definitely. Those big differences for sure. Um, and I can't claim to know a lot of those differences. I mean, I've, uh, the last church I was at, I think was a, uh, what was it? Um, assemblies of God church. Yeah. So, yeah. <clears throat> so bit of differences and it was a lot bigger. There was like two, three services on a Sunday. And, 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 and that's the thing know. too. I, I thought about mentioning that Chris, <laughs> the size of a church can shape things in churches as well. You know, like a yep. small church, that's a family church on one hand is very different than a really large church with the staff, you know, on the other mm. hand and the role of say the senior pastor is very different in a smaller yep. church versus a very large church. Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, actually I like the, the atmosphere of the church I'm at right now. Cause, um, without going into the full details, me and my wife had a very traumatic event happen within the last month or so. Well, my wife had to stay home from work. Uh, she had a uh, so, uh, procedure that she had to be on, you know, physical leave for a few days. And the church really rallied around. We didn't have the kids that weekend either. So it was just mm. me and her. And the church really rallied around, made us meals, brought them to our door, like cards, flower. This place looked like a floral shop, I'll tell yeah. you. <laughs> but they came around they rallied around us and like i can't say that i've had that support at the other church and it was nice it was kind of like yeah yeah you know uh god loves you have a great sunday be blessed but when you left the doors trying to get a hold of the pastor trying to get out like yeah you know, i was like hey what's up i'm kind of busy so <laughs> Yeah, there's now, strengths of both small churches and large churches, and those can be quite different. Like large sure. churches will certainly have the programs and the ministries that a small church cannot do. But in a small church, especially one under 50 a week in attendance, it's a family, and you are like yep. adopted into the family, and you are now a family member. And so you For are sure. experiencing that with what you and your wife went through recently. It's like yep. you're a member of the family and so the yep. level of support is just able to be, and I, my church is a small church, but I, for example, really feel called around pastoral care. And so, mm -hmm. you know, in a very large church, 
the senior pastor is not doing the pastoral care, maybe to the staff, but not to all the a thousand members. But in the right. small church, the pastor has availability to really give the people whatever level of pastoral care is, you know, needed. Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Me and uh, and it helped that the pastor is also my age, but me and me and the pastor Bobby, we've gone out for coffee. He'll come over here. We'll just I'll put on a pot of coffee. We'll catch up, see how like see how we're doing, you know. And it's really that close connection. And um, you know, I I I can't say I wouldn't wouldn't trade it for anything. Mm-hmm. I would much rather stay here than. Um, you know, go back to a church where that wasn't really available. <laughs> so, but, uh, yeah. So, um, I believe we're on four, uh, balancing pastoral and secular work. How did your experience in other work vocations outside of pastoral ministry influence your perspective when you returned? Were there valuable lessons or skills gained that you found applicable to your role as a pastor? Uh, well, some of the organizations that I worked with, you know, that were secular in the in the work world, you know, doing ministry, were very well run. And so, in particular, when I was working in the assisted living in the role of executive director. Um, they really followed like best business practices around their financials, uh, even yep. things like just the, their profit and loss statements, their operating reserves. And I never really, there was never really that kind of financial revenue for me in my church settings, which tended to have like a shoestring budget. And my <laughs> churches have always, you know, managed money faithfully. I've always had, you know, good accounting with the treasurers. But I certainly, in working in um, sort of larger organizations that were, you know, not profit, nonprofits, and, uh, you know, I learned um, transferable knowledge and skills that yeah. you can use, you know, in a church setting. Now, some of those, I'm in a small church. So, like, when I was doing the assisted living, I supervised 50 staff. And as affordable assisted living, I was like the HR manager, you know, as the executive director. So I certainly learned a lot about how you discipline staff, how you supervise staff, um, even just the law around, um, you know, what, what are employers' requirements that you have to meet when it comes to staff, you know, their benefits and their rights that they're, you know, entitled to. So I suppose some of those would be more transferable if I was serving in a larger church with more of a staff. But certainly you can get skills and knowledge in settings outside of the church, which can be transferable skills and knowledge that can help be more effective in a church setting as well. Uh, I'm doing Sunday school with the elementary age students with my wife who taught um, severe special ed for 20 years. Well, being an experienced, knowledgeable teacher, um, she brings a lot of things into us co-teaching together (laughs) that I would not know having never been a professional educator you know, it's mm. fun doing it with her, but it's fun getting to see her kind of do her thing as a teacher. And I could be like, I can observe what she's doing and I can see yep. she's more effective as a Sunday school teacher of children than I am. 
because of her schooling and because of her experience that she has as a teacher. So those teaching skills that she got mostly in private residential schools and public schools are very much transferable into teaching children, you know, in a, Mm. in a Sunday school in the church. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It, uh, it goes, goes to lend well to the craft and, uh, um, yeah, and I think there's that. That's with a few fields. You know, you can apply a biblical principle to it as well, and utilize those skills within a ministry role. Even if it, you know, Sunday service is perfect place to roll those out, and um, you know, because that may be the only ex- the only exposure some of these kids have. So you know, you really want to hit it home, right? So. I will say, too, a couple of my jobs did a lot more networking in the community, and those were certainly some skills where kind of networking with others, you know, for ministry. So, like, the church, a couple in the church has a property in New Ipswich that we wanted to use for ministry, and so Mm -hmm. having gotten a lot of experience with networking at a couple of my jobs in human social services, I felt very comfortable with sort of networking trying to form organizations with other Christian ministries that we mm-hmm. might then partner with. And so I learned yep. a lot about networking in secular jobs, but those networking skills were then beneficial with a certain area of looking to do ministry, you know, in the local church. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It is, uh, those things are definitely transferable and really useful for those, like, um, the ability to market yourself or something and the ability to network into those, those realms, uh, very, very useful, um, very useful for sure. Yeah. We had Chris, like, um, in one of the organizations, what's your elevator speech? So like in an Uh, elevator, what is the mission of the organization? And, you know, sometimes churches can use more clarity around what is their mission as a church. Um, You know, and even like say your ministry, if you had the clarity of an elevator speech, you know, to kind of be able to succinctly and coherently share with someone you meet, what is, you know, your ministry that you're engaged in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And the quick line kind of, all right, let's, uh, we don't have all day. Let's get to it. <laughs> yeah. Like if you just meet someone and like, oh, what do you do? Do you have something yep. short and coherent that would be kind of understandable on what your, your, you know, your purpose is? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, so, when I talk about my writing or my publicate my podcast with my writing, there's a very, very quick, very concise tagline to it. It how Christianity intersects politics. Mm. So and that's the written aspect of it. The podcast sure. ap- aspects of it. It's really simple. I just tell people who I focus on as guests. Cause it that really dictates what we talk about. Um, So, you know, when I'm talking to people about my podcast, I'll tell them, yeah, so, you know, I, um, I have people on the show that are small businesses, entrepreneurs, contractors, or generally interested in people. Mm -hmm. And 
the generally interested people part is a very broad encompassing field. So, sure. um, for examples, I, I've had some authors and I actually like having authors on and people in ministry on because it offers a diverse range of conversations for sure. Hmm. So that is uh, beneficial for sure. Um, but yeah, no, so I, I like that. But yeah, uh, short, snappy, to the point, things that get your word out and get people to grab onto, almost like sound bites, if you will, that mm-hmm. people can hold on to and be like, oh, right, right. Because who really has business cards when there are small potatoes? So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but all right. So the highs and lows <clears throat> in a lengthy tenure like yours, there are undoubtedly high and lows. Can you share some of the most challenging moments you faced as a pastor and how you've navigated through them? Well, I think that conflict in churches would be a very much a low and. Mm-hmm say unhealthy conflict and people leaving the church or people really not having close relationships with one another over conflict, you know, so hurt feelings or hurting one another. I would say um, in one of my churches, I experienced more, the church kind of had a long history going back decades and many pastors of being pretty critical of the pastor. And so, um, that's not an experience that I really enjoy. And I've been thankful to not have experienced that in recent, you know, years in ministry. Um, But, you know, kind of judging that people are being unfairly critical of me, you know, or my family as the pastor Mm -hmm. and, you know, not holding themselves to that same standard. And some of those times, those are just people's preferences. Like it's not really something in the Bible that the pastor is not adhering to, but it might more just be what their preferences are as far as style or personality, you know, in a pastor. So when I had left pastoral ministry, I was feeling kind of thin skinned around criticism directed at uh, me as the yeah. pastor and did not really see myself as returning to pastoral ministry, you know, but after a period of healing over five and a half years, was willing to have a call back to pastoral ministry, having more positive experiences, you know, with not feeling that some, you know, and even when I say some would be unfairly critical, it might be one of those things where 10 people might not be unfairly critical at all, but one person might be. And that tendency to feel far more hurt disproportionately, you know, by the one unfair negative person, you know, and, and kind of ignore, say, the majority of the people that are really not acting or behaving in that way. Right. Um, but, you know, sometimes as a pastor, it doesn't take too many people being what you judge unfairly, overly critical of you to feel, you know, hurt um, by that. And it certainly yep. doesn't take much, say, unhealthy conflict in the church, you know, to have that be a negative experience. I think one of the challenges that is going to happen in any church serving as a pastor is um, people go through difficult, hard things in life. And, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of pastoral ministry is just coming alongside of people when they're hurting or struggling 
and just a ministry of presence where you are there as a support, you know, with them, listening, praying with them. Uh, but when people go through hard things, even though I'm persistent in praying for them, it's not the case that, you know, God hasn't given me the power to resolve the situation, right? Or see, to yeah. heal them of the sickness or to spare them the pain that they're going through. And so as a pastor, you know, often it feels as though my powers are very limited. Uh, you know, obviously we're not God and yeah. you know, God is sovereign, but it can be, you know, it can weigh on you heavily. Um, like this is, even though I'm in a small church now, there's a number of people that are in very difficult life situations, going through really hard things and feeling mm -hmm. re deep sadness or some depression or some overwhelmed or wondering where is God in all of this and to mm -hmm. kind of carry that along with the person and try to remain sort of hopeful, you know, the hope that God can bring in the name of Jesus through the Holy Spirit to try to remain mm -hmm. hopeful for God's presence and God's healing, uh, it can be challenging emotionally, um, you know, to really kind of come alongside people that are hurting and struggling with hard things in life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, there's a lot to that. Um, and now a word about a coffee company we're an affiliate to. Ladies and gentlemen, coffee lovers and advocates for a better world, I've got something genuinely extraordinary to share with you today. We have an exceptional coffee company on our radar, and they're not just brewing great coffee, they're making a significant impact in the fight against human trafficking. That's right, today we're driving into the world of fight coffee. Now we all know that coffee is a universal pleasure. It's that magical elixir that wakes us up in the morning, fuels our work days, and provides solace in, the, in moments of respite. But have you ever craved a cup of coffee in the evening, only to avoid it because you don't want to be wide awake at 3 a.m.? Well, Fight Coffee has an answer for you. Introducing their Brazilian dark roast decaf coffee. It's a game changer. Many of us have tried decaf coffee from other brands only to be met with dismal, undesirable brews that taste nothing like the real thing. But Fight Coffee breaks the mold. This decaf coffee is robust, flavorful, and rich, offering a taste that defies the typical decaf experience. It's a true revelation, allowing you to enjoy the depth and complexity of a dark roast in the evening without worrying about tossing and turning all night. You can savor this coffee and still get a peaceful night's sleep. And that's something many of us have been longing for. And Fight Coffee has delivered. But what truly sets Fight Coffee apart is their unwavering commitment to fighting human trafficking. Every purchase you make with them goes directly towards organizations that are dedicated to combating this global issue. So when you choose to brew a cup of Brazilian dark roast decaf coffee in the evening, you're not only just indulging in a fantastic flavor, 
you're making a real difference in the world. It's a win-win. Great coffee that helps make the world a better place. That's what I call a double shot of goodness. So if you want to experience a decafe like no other and be part of a meaningful cause, Fight Coffee is your choice. Head to their website, check out their selection, and join their mission. This is more than just coffee. It's a chance to brew change one cup at a time. I'll have all the links and information in the show notes, so be sure to explore and support Fight Coffee. So, back to the show. If you found value in this message, be sure to let us know. Also, if you decide to make a purchase with Fight Coffee, be sure to leave our affiliate code in the special instructions box. Our code is COC. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been enjoying this episode as much as we have. We now return to our podcast guest, Dale. The evolution of faith over the years has, how has your personal faith evolved and what new perspectives about your vocation have you gained that you might not have had at the beginning of your ministry journey? Yeah, I will say that my initial call to ministry, you know, I had been Roman Catholic and then I was in a mainline Protestant church and I first felt called to ministry where I was doing a lot of um, volunteer work and I was minoring in religion, so studying religion. And I felt that my first attraction was like, well, being a pastor could be a job where I really get to help people and support people and continue to study religion. So that was kind of my initial attraction. Then when I started in seminary and I'm studying theology and I'm rereading the Bible, uh, it was um, 32 years ago between the, the semesters that I'm reading like to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified and the surpassing value of the gospel such that all other things are rubbish. And it was like I had never read them before. And so like I experienced a new birth. I knew Jesus as my Lord and Savior, which (laughs) had not been part of my Catholic upbringing and was not part of my mainline Protestant upbringing and was fairly unusual at Andover Newton when the mainline seminary that I was going to school to be a pastor at. Uh, And so I became born again studying theology and rereading the New Testament. And so thankfully that was when I was 24 and then when I was 25, I started as a pastor. Um, so I did you know, become born again or regenerate prior <laughs> to starting to work as a pastor. But that was a very yeah. early transition for me, um, you know, from first being called to ministry to then actually serving basically as an evangelical pastor, sharing the gospel. Um, more recently, I think some of the things that I've, I think I've become more solid on um, in my doctrine, um, uh-huh. you know, as I've kind of matured and spent more time in ministry. You know, I kind of would have said I was a moderate evangelical in my youth. I probably would more identify as a conservative evangelical at this point in ministry. Now, part of that, too, is like people would say that I moved a little bit to the right, but the culture over my last 30 years in ministry has moved a lot to the left. Mm. And so I might seem a lot more conservative, more as contrasted to the culture 
you know, even more so than how much I kind of shifted, you know, myself in my um, theology. More, you know, more recently, I felt more bold in evangelizing and thinking, preaching through like First and Second Timothy, and do the work of an evangelist. And I think I too much when I was younger, I would preach the gospel, I'd share Christ, but I wouldn't want to offend people who didn't want to hear it, who had no interest. And I might want to sort of earn the right to share the gospel in my relationship with them or how they experienced me or my example. And again, those are still good, but I've kind of been more, you know, in recent years. Well, if people are offended by the gospel, it's, you know, it's the cross that's offensive. Right. And I'm to share the gospel and I'm feeling less worried about if people are offended by it. Like, I don't want to be offensive, but, you know, a lot of people are just going to find the gospel offensive because they don't have the Holy Spirit and they don't have faith. So I'm feeling more bold and witnessing more and less concerned, you know, in in the sense the Bible says that people are going to be offended Mm -hmm. because they don't have the Holy Spirit. So rather than avoiding that, I'm like, well, if I share the gospel with a thousand people, what if five people receive it? You know, mm-hmm. so what if 900 people were offended? Yeah. But what if just by that faithfulness and sharing it, there's some amount of people that will receive it through the Holy Spirit and come to faith? Yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, two things I think of that, of what you just said. One, you know, what scripture talks about. The whole heavens and the whole, you know, all the angels rejoice over just one person that has right. given their self, uh, you know, over to God. So five people, it'd be like a palooza up there, you know. And, yeah, um, amen. And the other thing I think of is actually um, just in the regards of getting out the, the gospel and talking about it, what did Jesus say, you know? They hated me. <laughs> right. They hated me. So if they if if they hate you, don't feel bad because it's they hated me too. And this is right. Jesus saying this. Right. I mean, you know, so if they if we feel slighted, if we feel hated, rest assured we're doing something right. <laughs> yeah, and so. not in like not even so much that we might be persecuted for the sake of the gospel, that but that would be a blessing. But say we're just basically disliked because of the gospel. Well, shouldn't yep. as believers, shouldn't we be willing to be disliked for the sake of the gospel, to be faithful and obedient, but also so that people might be saved? For um, sure. I think another area, too, when I was young, I think I had kind of more delusions of grandeur, you know, wanted to do great mm-hmm. things for the kingdom and as yeah. a pastor. And as I've gotten older and longer in ministry, I strive to just be more content with being faithful and obedient in ministry and as a disciple to what God calls me to. And it doesn't need to be dramatic, you know, that I'm an earthen vessel and I just want to be a faithful vessel to however God, you know, might choose to use me uh, in ministry. And so more focused on faithfulness, obedience and less focused on doing and accomplishing great things for the kingdom. I mean, God's sovereign. If God wants to do that through my ministry, God is capable, but that's really not within my power or control anyways. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, uh, uh, someone said recently, and I really think it makes a lot of sense. Some 
stove, some harvest, some water, mm. um, and but it all works together. So right to God's glory. Yep, yep. And I think that and sometimes the spirit that gives the increase. Yep, yep. So yeah, you know, and uh, I think sometimes I'm like, okay, um, I may have missed an opportunity there, and yeah, uh, I'll. I'll probably beat myself up about it for the next hour. Like, oh, I should have said this, should have said that. But honestly, you know, uh, if God's trying to get a hold of them, they're not going to go. God's not. Jesus isn't sitting up there going, oh, great. Kristen say this to so-and-so. And now I'm never going to reach them. <laughs> well, and, yeah. you know, and there might be instead of like say one and done and you missed your opportunity. Sometimes we can circle back and say, Hey, I thought further about our conversation or, you know, I've, I've given more thought to maybe how I reacted or how I treated you. And I wanted to circle back and touch base and talk about it. And so, you know, so, yeah, I suppose we meet someone and I met people in the airport that I've talked about, you know, the faith with and I'm never going to see them again. But mm -hmm. if it's someone we have a relationship with, there certainly could be those opportunities if we feel like some misgivings or regrets to circle oh, for back sure. and revisit the conversation with them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, with the, with the ability to see them more often creates the ability to talk more into their life. But um, yeah, uh, my my comment was more on the people you see on the street or the airport or whatever. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are people we cross paths, and you know, short of heaven, we're not likely to cross paths with them again. Right, right. So that <laughs> that was kind of my uh, short little bit there. But um, so continuing the journey. Looking forward, what are your hopes and aspirations for the future of your pastoral ministry? And how do you envision your role evolving? And what legacy do you hope to leave behind? Yeah, um, I hope that my best seasons in ministry lie ahead rather than behind me. And I hope that that might rest in greater faithfulness and obedience in serving as a pastor. And so this, you know, most recent full-time in pastoral ministry where it's going on three years, I've tried to more time in the word, more time in prayer, more time in, you know, deep fellowship with others, including other, um, you know, people in ministry and it's not so much that what I'm doing I'd lift up as superlative or as like a best practice, but it's more that I feel that I'm more doing what I should have been doing all along. And I don't have those feelings as a young pastor of misgiving or regret that, you know, knowing that I wasn't spending enough time in prayer or wasn't spending enough time you know, in the word or not enough time in fellowship. And even besides my individual prayers, I have multiple corporate prayer opportunities with different groups of believers throughout the week. So instead of corporate prayer being more, you know, now it's almost daily for me or, you know, or multiple yeah. times a week instead of, you know, infrequent or short, it used to be short in duration. Now it's longer in duration. Hmm. So, you know, when they poll pastors, you know, how long do you spend a day praying or how long do you spend studying the Bible? 
not for like preparing a sermon or a Bible study, but just as a disciple. And, mm-hmm. you know, most pastors answers are, you know, very short. Yep. And so the encouragement I would give is, you know, if you really feel convicted on wanting to do better or make a new start, there's always good opportunities to do that. I sort of said to myself, coming back to full-time pastoral ministry, well, you know, God, are you calling me to do this now in this season? And if I don't do it now in this season of ministry and life, am I going to wait till I retire to start doing it in that right. season of ministry and life? And every time I frame it that way, I always feel like God directed me like, no, I want to, and you should begin it now, you know, in this current season of ministry and life that you are in and don't put it off until, you know, this next season of life and ministry. Um, Mm. So I hope that, that, you know, God would judge me more faithful and more obedient in pastoral ministry you know, in this season that I'm now in, uh, I hope to have another long pastorate. I'd had a 13 year pastorate, um, in my second church from age 27 to 40. Uh, I started here at age 54. So if it's pleasing to the Lord, if it's God's will, it would seem good to me to, you know, be the pastor at Pilgrim Covenant Church until I retire and have another long pastorate. Um, I had done a doctorate on church growth and church renewal, and one of the variables was, say, longer pastorate, say, five to 15 years in length uh, when it's a good fit versus the average pastorate is only about four years. And it takes like four years to really form a strong relationship between a pastor and a congregation. So yeah. the average being four years is not especially productive, whereas the years five through 15 and plus can be much more productive years in ministry as a pastor with a church. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's, uh, that's good. Um, the, the legacy and the hope of that is, um, something that's worthwhile. Um, and it actually lends well to the next question, really. Um, he touched on some of it too, in terms of what you hope. So advice for aspiring pastors, for those considering a career in pastoral ministry, what advice would you offer based on your extensive experience? And are there insights you wish you had known when at first entering this calling? <clears throat> I did as a young pastor when I was only 25, I had in my association a lot of older pastors that were like near retirement age. And they did share like a lot of pithy sayings with me. Um, (laughs) And and they were helpful. And especially as a young new pastor, they were helpful to me. Like they had said like, well, 10% of your church will love you no matter what you do. 10% will dislike you no matter what you do try to please the 80% in the middle. Yeah. Um, or they'd say like, um, give away 10% and save 10% of your, you know, of your income and then, you know, live on the other 80%. And so they gave a lot of sort of, you know, good counsel, uh, from their decades in ministry. And yep. I, I'd have to say that, um, all of that rang true for me. Uh, I remember one middle-aged pastor who just had a lot of joy in being a pastor. And, you know, sometimes people got close to retirement and they couldn't retire yet, but they were getting tired and kind of wanted to. And so even that 
you know, kind of you be a good example or a bad example, encouraged me that I wanted to have a lot of energy and enthusiasm for pastoral ministry to the finish line, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like Paul mm-hmm. talks about, you know, finishing well. And I didn't want to sort of go through the motions, you know, for maybe the last five years waiting to retire, um, you know, so to really try to stay fresh and enthusiastic, um, you know, in ministry. They had said things when I started, like, don't be a pastor unless you can't do anything else or <laughs> don't go into pastoral ministry unless you'd rather fail at pastoral ministry than to succeed at anything else. And I think part of that, what it gets to is it really needs to be a calling and you really need to be called, you know, to be a pastor. Um, Work can be a job, a career or a calling. And I think there's just things that are vocations where they're really not even careers, they're callings. Mm. And Mm. I think that if someone wants to be a pastor, serve as a pastor, it's something that they really should be called by God, you know, to do. For sure. Uh, Cause there, there's a lot of people that uh, would get into it for the wrong reasons and um, fizzle out and in the process of doing so, who gets affected by that? You know, the congregation, right? So, you know, right. Right. How does yeah, that... it's not about getting your needs met as the pastor, right, for attention or to be liked or yeah. to be successful, right? The focus is really tr- as much as possible on the church, the parishioners, you know, what are their needs? And are you yeah. me- able, are you called to meet them as a pastor? <laughs> right, right. Because, I mean, you think of the pastoral role, what is the main priority in that pastoral role if you had to boil it down? Is it, you know, getting up in front of the pulpit and listening to yourself talk? Or is it doing the studies? Or is it like this prestige of it? Personally, yeah. and you can you can speak to this more than I, I would. But personally, I would think the main call of a pastor is to serve your flock. So. Yeah, I always felt called to serve as a pastor. Um, and even when I was 24 and had been an assistant for a year, the senior pastor said that I had a pastor's heart. Um, and so, you know, Jesus said he's the good shepherd. So pastor does mean a shepherd more technically pastors are under shepherds, right? Mm. Jesus is the head of the church. He's a good shepherd and we're under shepherds. Yep. You know, certainly as we are shepherds, a shepherd, you know, has a responsibility to teach the truth, uh, and to not let the flock, you know, go into error or heresy. So mm-hmm. certainly there is then a strong connection. And, and again, going through the pastoral epistles, First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus, there is a strong then a faithful shepherd is a good teacher and preacher, um, mm-hmm. but also leader and, you know, and cares for the flock, that those things are part and parcel of caring for the flock well Uh Um, but you really do need to have a lot of love for the people and i can say i love everyone in the church and you know i i really could kind of say like i think sometimes people might focus on likes and dislikes with others well i think as a pastor you really need to like 
put the emphasis on the things you like about others, right? And not let yeah. yourself be frustrated by things that we all have quirks of our personality that can be, you know, irritating. But <laughs> yeah. beyond that, it's not about liking or disliking. It's really about loving everyone in the church, which is yep. far more important in what we're called to, to love one another, which is much deeper than, you know, whether we happen to like someone. For sure. Um <clears throat> Yeah, for sure. Cause, uh, yeah, that's a big part right there. Like you can do your job and you can be effective in your job, but, um, I'm sure there's bound to be people in the congregation that you're like, Oh Lord, uh, why, why did you bring this person here? But there you, you can reach them. You can, you can use me to reach them, but Oh Lord. <laughs> Uh, yeah, one of the jokes is that someone could be an EGR person, yeah. which is extra grace required. Um, <laughs> but but I would say if we have the right attitude, people that we find the most difficult to love and to relate to, those people are often the soil that the Holy Spirit uses to grow us the most. Yeah. And so if you think about like the word bringing an increase of 30, 60 and a hundred fold, mm -hmm. um, people that I'm close to that are really hard for me to love have challenged me a lot more to grow in the fruit of the spirit. And as a disciple of Jesus, than people who I just enjoy being with who are relatively easy for me to love. Mm -hmm. That makes sense uh, when you put it, when you frame it like that, because um yeah it takes a bit uh it, it's almost like learning a new skill you know the easy ones you can fly through them <clears throat> but yeah you don't so much need the holy spirit to love people who we find easy to love we have yeah. to rely on the holy spirit if we are going to in our flesh be capable of loving people that are hard for us to love for whatever reason yeah yeah for sure uh so i like that framework um, all right. So navigating changes in ministry setting, ministry settings may change, but the call to ministry to minister remains constant. As you mentioned, how do you approach adapting to new environments and maintaining the core principles of your faith in various settings? Mm. Yeah. Um, like when I, left pastoral ministry and was working in human social services, I still felt that I was doing ministry and called to ministry. Those organizations were focused on helping and supporting and caring for people, you know, certain groups of people uh, in, in certain situations. Uh, and so I did not feel as though I had left ministry when I was then serving outside of a church setting as a pastor. Yeah. And so I think a big part of that, no matter what ministry we're serving in, is, well, who are we and who are we in Christ? And do we perceive ourselves as called to ministry, called to that work setting? And are we then doing working in a way as though working unto the Lord? I do think that for a believer, that there is no job that they can't make a positive difference in. And, you right. know, and really be influential. And I'm, there's, you know, a lot of entry level jobs that if a person does it with peace and with joy, if they do it is with humility, 
if they're really looking to serve others, if as they interact with others, they're trying to be caring and supportive and generally interested in others. I think that those attitudes as believers that we should bring to whatever work, you know, we're doing that we can be making big impacts, you know, far beyond what we might be aware of, you know, in whatever setting God has us working in, in that season of our life. Mm. Yeah, no, it's a big one because, um, different seasons of life are different, um, different situations. So, you know, uh, they call for different skills, different approaches, right? I mean, um, but some of the overlap for sure is there. So like before I moved to Maine, uh, I was in the buy resale field. Um, well, in between when I left Mission E4 at the height of COVID and mm. when I moved to Maine, I was doing both uh like basic landscaping stuff, but also um, I was in the buy resale field. So buy something for a low price, sell it for a higher price. And mm-hmm. I I enjoyed that. Uh, it was lucrative. I mean, I could, you know, if you're in the, if you know the Hubbardston area at all, there's a Rietta Ranch. Yes, I and, do. So I would go there, me and my dad would go there, and from about the time it opened to about the time everything petered out about noontime, we would be there selling. Now, granted, during the summer, it's a touchy area because it's on Sunday, so you're missing church, so you got to weigh out that. And uh, But um, <clears throat> on a given Sunday, within the time frame that we were there, I could easily clear about two to three hundred dollars for the day. Mm. So you know, I looked at that and I was like, "Man, this this is going pretty well," and um, I really enjoyed it. Well, when I moved up here, where I live in rural Maine, the closest place that I would find a lot of those things, because I did research prior, is about a two and a half, two hour drive one way. So it really wouldn't wow. be effective to do that. And um, I had had the foresight to do the research beforehand, so I knew what I was getting into, and I had time to pivot. But um, my wife really uh, suggested to look, you know, it seems like you really have a strength for writing. It's really something that I guess you're passionate about. You ought to lean into that. And uh, um, so that was one thing I leaned into. But... Through the course of doing that, I've utilized different skills I've picked up through the years, both marketing, networking, um, being bold enough to ask the questions that, hey, um, what about this? Or, hey, I'm doing this. You know, do you want to come alongside it? You know, just being bold, really, and being okay with sending out 20 messages to people and only getting maybe five responses um, or maybe five to eight and of those eight responses really only getting about three yeses and being okay with that so yeah yeah not being (laughs) discouraged yeah 
because uh, part of my job when I worked in ministry, when I was on staff with a nonprofit, was fundraising. So I had to really mm. like, I had to get used to the process, you know. And um, sure. but all those skills uh, came in handy when I got into what I currently do. So um, it was uh, it was quite the skill for sure. Um, and I really leaned into it because I liked it. Um, I liked the hunt for stuff and finding things that, uh, you know, were slept on. You know, people slept on because they were a good deal. And I knew what the price market was. I knew what my overhead was. And at the time, I was at my parents. So I was able to get some shelving and... Um, you know, put the inventory in my room so I didn't have a storage fee either. And so that worked out well, actually, because unlike my parents who were paying rent for storage, paying rent at a flea market, I could take my stuff, list it on Marketplace. And so there was no overhead fee, really. And I knew what the price values were for a lot of those things. So when I figured that out, um, I was then <clears throat> able to able to navigate the ROI, you know, return on investment. And um, from that point is where things really picked up. When I left, I had regulars that would buy from me, like on site when they saw me at Riata. Um, um, for a variety of different things. I really specialized in collectibles. So, you know, like comics, toys, uh, video games. Um, I delved into some areas with like cameras and stuff like that. But there's so many different nuances there that I didn't stay very long. Same with cards, trading cards. There's mm -hmm. oh, so many things to learn about that and there's so much rubbish like basically throwaway cards that have no value that i did not stay in that aspect of it very long but um the two areas i really enjoyed <clears throat> and had built up contacts over the years for like buying and selling was in video games and comics um mm -hmm comics i had built a uh connection where i could call them or text them and be like hey i'm looking for this that and the other thing i need you to put together a long box and a long box if you're unfamiliar with it holds roughly about 300 comics wow yeah so i would get the the long box i'd they would they were only a half hour away from where i lived and i would have them deliver it to my parents house i'd usually give them some money for gas because they're trying to make money too and it's a convenience rather than me having to go to them so the 20 bucks uh as i say when you tip well people are more inclined to help you so mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, so they made their money, I made my money, and really it ended up being about uh, 
roughly 50 to 70 cents per comic that I had out, you know, roughly. I mean, not an exact number, but um, that was about what it equated to. So if I sold one comic for, say, a dollar to two dollars, um, I've basically doubled my money. And there were some comics I had that uh, one particular deal that sticks out was a guy that came to from Rhode Island to meet me. And, um, you know, because he was really enthusiastic about the comics I had. And um, uh, for about, I think, seven of them, he paid 90 bucks. And then while he was there, he bought about, uh, what was it? Uh, he ended up walking away with the equivalent to like $160 of comics. And it was good for me because what I had into him, that was an astronomical uh, ROI for sure. So mm, I was... Yeah really happy with that return on investment and um <clears throat> that was one of the few deals that it really went well actually for me um and so it went pretty well i was really happy with that and um you're welcome and um so there that was the great thing about comic you keep them in decent condition you you know, you know how to price them. You know how to source them. There's a pretty good market there that you can uh, gravitate towards. But so it's a long story just to say that, uh, you know, um, different avenues, different skills. One of the things I got really used to from that, though, was sourcing and looking things up and taking the time to find things. So why is that important? Um, that's half of what I do with the podcast is finding people and mm. talking to people and figuring out, uh, does this person have a marketable skill that will lend to some content on market on my podcast? So, um but yeah it's uh it is i really enjoy the podcast model and i enjoy um having diverse guests on and um right now i i make a bit of a pittance of income for it but there's uh there's some plans on the horizon that you know could pick that up so that's uh that's good at least. Great. But, yeah, but I mean, uh, um, with that said, uh, let's see. We're on, uh, I believe, question 10, correct? Yes. All right. All right. So, navigating changes in ministry setting. Ministry settings may change but the call to minister remains constant. As you mentioned, 
How do you approach adapting to new environments and maintaining the core principles of your faith in various settings? Now, Chris, uh, I remember you were asking like about being mentored and mentoring others. And um, Karen Easter was someone who had mentored me when I was just first feeling a call to ministry. Was yeah. that part of this question or is that like in the next question? Uh, let me see. That is, I remember that question, but I don't remember where it was. Um, mm -hmm. Well, and that could be a thing that changes in ministry. So I think I can kind of address it here regardless. You know, uh, okay. Uh, Karen, that was actually mentioned Easter. in five. In okay. Yeah. Five. So when I was first feeling a call to ministry in my early 20s, and I had mentioned that I was part of four different um, nonprofits yep. volunteering. And one was Reach Out, which was a hotline, emergency, an uh, informational referral and emergency hotline for people. And so um, Karen knew that I was feeling a call to pastoral ministry. And so she really tried to teach me as much as she could while I was volunteering in her organization about running an organization. So yeah. she was very intentional um, you know, and kind of taking me under her wing and sort of using opportunities that came up in her organization to mentor me. And that was where, when you're asking about a father-in-law, that was yep. Karen with her father-in-law. Oh, so okay. Her, her family's Episcopal and yep. her father-in-law, very godly man, was a retired Episcopal priest, but he kept doing ministry like well into his 80s. Oh, so wow. he would serve as an interim pastor. And so he was really an encouragement uh, to the family of not only being a godly servant, but someone who, yeah, he retired from his job, but he kept serving in pulpit supply and interim ministry like well into his 80s. Um, and, you know, Karen, like, came to my ordination, even though it was in Massachusetts, and we had, you know, she lived in northern New York, and so I'd had the 29th anniversary of my ordination, and Karen's like, oh, I was so glad that I could be there at your ordination, and I was <laughs> ordained when I was 27, yep. and I was like, yeah, and you mentored me when I was, like, 22, 23 years of age, <laughs> like, she probably mentored me from about 21 to 23 before I I went to seminary. Oh, wow. And I'm at the point now where there's a pastor in a neighboring church who's in his 30s and newer to ministry, and I'm getting to serve as, you know, his mentor is someone who's old, not only older, but, you know, been in ministry for longer. Yeah. You know, sometimes if people are new to something, you can mentor them. You know, you're not necessarily older, but you might be more experienced in that area of ministry. Right. And so I would really recommend people both seeking out intentionally to have good mentors that are godly, you know, and really healthy relationships and really supportive. But then as people get more experience in certain areas of life or ministry, it's very rewarding and fulfilling to get to mentor someone else. And part of my trying to be faithful and obedient. I have not experienced revival in my ministry, and I'd love to be part of a revival in northern Worcester County, in Massachusetts, mm -hmm. where I serve. And I felt God say to me, as long as you don't care where the revival takes place, that you'll get to be part of a revival before you retire. So mm -hmm. it might be in a colleague's ministry. It might be in the ministry of someone else's <laughs> ministry that I'm supporting. 
Yeah. Um, but I said, you know, I just want to be in the room, right? I could be a doorkeeper <laughs> in a ministry experience and revival. Yeah. It doesn't have to be my church. I don't have to be the center of it. And I kind of felt myself sort of agree with God that, yes, I am okay with supporting others in ministry and being part of revival, not necessarily in the church where I'm the pastor, but in someone's ministry that I'm either part of or supportive of. And mm. for me at this point in life in ministry, that would feel I'd have just as much joy and, 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 and <laughs> thankfulness at supporting someone else's ministry do great things mm-hmm. as God doing great things, you know, through my ministry. Yeah, no, that is um, that's a it's a valuable lesson for sure. To or a valuable point of interest is um, realizing that you know we can be a part of something, but as long as we're not holding on tightly, like it has to be this, then yeah, I think God can. Well, God can bless anything he wants to bless, but you know what I mean? Like if we're not holding on so tightly that like, no, Lord, it has to be this way. It has to be like, you have to do what I want you to do. It's like, no. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, just... I'm rereading Experiencing God um, by Henry Blackaby kind of 30 years after I read it the first time. Yeah. And that was definitely what you're saying, Chris. That was my biggest takeaway from experiencing God, like maybe, you know, 30 years ago yeah. was that, you know, to God, to, to discern through the Holy spirit where God is at work and that part of God's calling is calling us to join in the places and the ministry that in the people that he's at work in what he's doing. Yeah. And like you said, it's not always we come up with the ministry and, and ask God to bless it, but it's more, are we adaptive? Are we discerning where God is at work? And are we then willing to join in where God's working? And sometimes yeah. that can sort of feel like it comes out of the blue Right. It, it yep. might be some new thing, some unexpected thing, but we see God at work. And even if it wasn't what we were planning, are we willing to kind of drop our plans and join in the work through the Holy Spirit that God is doing? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, and, you know, uh, it, it might be slightly out of context, but, you know, as they say, uh, many are called, few answer. So, right. Mm. Yes. Um, but, uh, all right. So we have two more questions. Um, this last one though, I mean, 11, um, you kind of touched on a lot of that. I don't know if there was more you wanted to say about that or, um, oh, this is about your parents. So yeah, it's, um, your parents played a significant role in your journey. How has their legacy influenced your approach to ministry and what lessons from their experience have you found particularly valuable? Yes, I was very blessed to grow up in a um, healthy, loving, blue-collar home. Um, I have three younger sisters that I'm very close to. I'm still very close to my mom and dad. You know, we're very close as a family, very supportive of one another. And my parents got married at 19 and had me at 20. So, um, you know, I'm 56 and my parents have been married for 57 years. And they're just, you know, 77 years old. Um, And Mm. so 
religion was a big part of my family growing up, like hard work, community, school, church. Um, you know, these were just the values that was instilled in my three sisters and I growing up. Like we had a really large garden mm-hmm. and, you know, my parents, we all worked in the garden, right? And my right. parents, they froze enough to feed us all winter. We didn't have a lot of money. Dad was a factory worker and mom was a stay-at-home mom, then a nurse's aide, then a stay-at-home mm-hmm. grandmother. And so they always managed very well what they had for money. The priest would, we had the same family priest for decades and he would come over. He would always tease about how, yeah, every time I went over, um, Emil and Linda had the kids out working in the garden. They were always working. And yeah. like, I was like, dad, why don't we have a dishwasher? And he goes, I already have four dishwashers. I don't, I don't need a dishwasher. Yeah. And so it just really instilled, you know, hard work, family, you know, holiday traditions, community, church. So like, you know, going to church and being involved in church, that was no more an option than going to school was or doing Mm -hmm. our chores were, right? It was just, these were the expectations of the household. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm young and, you know, my parents were young enough that I've really watched them grow and mature over the years. Mm-hmm. And in particular, I've seen my father mature in ministry over the years. So I was like maybe eight and he was um, practicing to be a lay reader in church yeah. and sort of having a hard time with the pronunciation. And my mom, who was better in school, helping dad with how to pronounce hard biblical words. Well, that was in his late 20s. Yeah. Well, my dad was ordained a deacon in the Catholic Church in 2009, mm-hmm. and he loves serving in ministry, you know, as a deacon. Uh, my mom and dad retired young at 55, and they're 77. They've done full-time volunteer Christian ministry um, for over 20 years. Wow. So from feeding the hungry to um, my mom runs a ministry in their parish which is um, called the Gabriel Project, but it's helping um, mothers of children age zero to three that are at risk. So it's really trying to encourage, you know, young women to keep their babies that might not have supports and might not have, you know, might be impoverished. They have like angels who mentor the women. They provide them with, say, cribs and diapers, you know, those kinds of things. So she's done that for many years. (coughs) Two of my, my younger two kids we adopted, Mm, My son from Korea as a baby and our younger daughter um, through the state as a baby. And so my parents were very thankful that our their grandson, you know, our son, Joshua, he was in a Christian foster home, two Christian foster homes in Korea Mm -hmm. for five and a half months before he came home to be part of our family. And he's now um, 26 years old Mm -hmm. and they felt called to be a foster home for children before they were placed in their adoptive homes. And so through Catholic Charities, there was a number of years where they were the foster home for babies through Catholic Charities before they got placed into their adopted families. And they had like 12 children um, as foster babies. And some of them, they still have a relationship with now as young adults where, you know, they'll get invited to the high school graduation or their confirmation or, you know, 
key parts of their lives as they've, you know, continued in their adoptive families. Mm-hmm. So my parents have been a real encouragement and a real support. You know, they still tell me that they're proud of me and they love me. And at the same time, I also am very, you know, proud of them and, you know, the ministry and the service that they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like he, he really had a uh, full spectrum involved, uh, family life and a lot of memories made, huh? Yes. Very blessed. And, you know, I I just kind of took that for granted as a child and kind of assumed that that was everyone's home. Mm. You know, then you kind of get older and you realize that unfortunately that's not the home, you know, that everyone's a product of. But I think the encouragement on that is, is that, you know, people are able, uh, and I think especially, as they become believers and they experience inner healing and relational healing that, you know, people can then establish, you know, different households and families in marriages, maybe than what they experienced. I had good role models. Unfortunately, some people have bad role models, but both my wife and I, we have people that we're closely related to that they didn't grow up in, you know, great households, but they went on to, um, you know, be part of very different marriages and families and households, you know, than the ones that they had experienced themselves. So yeah. God has that kind of power to bring healing and transformation and even bring, you know, good out of, you know, evil, like someone intended it for evil, but God used it for good. And even, you know, opportunities to minister to others that maybe have come from a, diff- a similar hard situation, circumstance, <laughs> And if the person's experienced some growth and some healing, how much they can encourage someone else who maybe has struggled in some similar ways to what they've overcome. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's, uh, you know, there's, there's always something to be gleaned from it. Right. So, yes, yes. God, like what is God's plan and purpose and how can God redeem it and how can he use it? for the good and for his purposes, Mm. because, you know, for the believer, God is always able to redeem things, uh, you know, to his good plan. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, so balancing long-term commitment in an era where career changes are common, what has kept you committed to pastoral ministry for an extended period? And, how do you maintain passion and dedication over the long term? I will say that I have had two periods in my life where I experienced, you know, kind of professional work burnout and made career changes. Mm-hmm. So when I was 40, I felt then burnout from full-time pastoral ministry. And I had been a pastor for 15 years and I went back <laughs> to school for human social services and I started working entry level you know, at the bottom while going to school because I had worked entry level in churches while I was going to school. And I felt it was a good model to study and work at the same time. And I moved up, you know, in my second field, I, probably starting at age 40, it was easier to move up more quickly. Yeah. Um, but I was able to move from a low position to a higher position. But then at that point, We'd put our first two kids through college and I had worked bivocationally for eight years and I was traveling and I was tired and burnt out again. And so, you know, just 
three years ago, transitioned back to full-time pastoral ministry in a small church. So I think the encouragement I would give people, one encouragement as they go through life and work and ministry is, you know, there can be seasons where you can become aware that you need to make a change. And, you know, rather than maybe being afraid to make a change, my encouragement would be to have the courage to make changes that you discern, you know, through the Holy Spirit, God calling you to, and that that can keep us fresh and vital and renewed and able to kind of keep on, you know, in ministry and in service is, you know, not being hesitant to make needed changes uh, along the way. So I think that the fact that I made changes twice over the course of 30 years I think has really renewed me both times and kept me fresh and, you know, made it so that I can keep on keeping on in ministry. Well, that is good. I mean, that's, uh, that's the goal, right? Keep on keeping on. So, um, which, uh, yeah, I think that that's a smart move. You know, when you're, when you feel it, you gotta pivot a bit and then, uh, if Lord allows you go back to it later and um, you know uh, it's good uh, I so I had someone actually with my my publication and my podcast um, someone had said to me <clears throat> that I need to take absolutely every opportunity I can to talk about Jesus. And while I agree that it is important to talk about Jesus and important Jesus into what every aspect that you can do, I also understand that by doing so, you run the risk of ramming it down people's throats. Right. And so I'm more of the philosophy that you get more bees with honey. So... Um, well, and I think, like you said too, if people make it clear that they have absolutely no interest whatsoever, I do think we still want to be friendly and form relationships and and be, have positive relationships and try to be an example. Um, but there is, like in the Bible, the and people will remind me of this as well to encourage me, like to not not cast pearls before swine, and you know, opp- times to shake your dust off your feet. Yeah, and. You know, I mean, there's going to be people that are interested and there's going to be people that are not interested. Sure, we want to witness to people. And but if we see that they have no interest whatsoever at that point, I don't think it's good stewardship then to keep sort of hammering away at people that have made it really clear that they're not interested. They don't they don't want it. They're not. It's not welcome. And so kind of that, again, experiencing God by Henry Blackaby work in people in places where God is at work and maybe this season God's not at work in that person. Yeah. And so I even think just from a stewardship point of view, you know, don't burn bridges, don't be argumentative or combative, mm-hmm. you know, try to stay respectful, gentle, you know, uh, having maintaining as much relationship as we can, but why, you know, we have limited time and have limited energy. Why would we mm-hmm. keep investing a lot in trying to witness to someone who's very clear that it's not something at this point that they're interested in. For sure. For sure. Cause uh, my mind thinks of something I was just talking with a guest about yesterday about the idea of um, the quote out there that says preach the gospel always 
and sometimes use words. So Right, right. That that being an example. It's kind of related to that, that you're the only Bible some people will read. Yeah. I would say though, my kind of calling back before some of my own growing edge is to try to still be more bold in actually sharing the gospel. Oh yeah, for because sure. How will they know if they haven't heard, yeah. you know, and blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. Yeah. And so I do think that we do need a little through the Holy Spirit, a spirit of boldness and of courage and not of timidity, mm. you know, where we do find ways to, with words as well, share <laughs> the gospel. Obviously, yeah. we don't want to be hypocrites. We want to walk the walk yeah. and talk the talk. And that can be winsome as well. But a lot of people in our culture do not know what the gospel is. No. Nope. And and there's a lack of sharing it in ways that are understandable to others. Mm-hmm. And as I say this, this is convicting to me, <laughs> where this is an area where God is calling me to keep being more faithful and obedient in, yeah. so that, you know, sort of like physician, heal thyself. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, there are certainly areas where we have to communicate. We have to be bold. We have to talk about it. Um, but in the areas like we suggested where like you're getting a clear divide, clear wall, you, you don't want to try to pull out a sledgehammer. <laughs> you know? Agreed. Agreed. And sometimes we can is like we don't want to just be another special interest group <laughs> that's lobbying, you know, for our position on a level equal playing field with every other special interest group. And I think it's easy, I think, for us as evangelical Christians to sort of succumb to, you know, we're planting our flag here on this hill, you know, and we're in opposition and combat other, you know, ideologies. I mean, certainly we want to witness to the truth of the scriptures and word and indeed, but we don't want to become indistinguishable and identical to every other group that's out there as well. And I think Mm -hmm. too often, we sort of look a lot alike other groups, you know, even just their tactics, their methodology, you know, they relate how you relate to people who are quote unquote enemies, right? Say political social enemies. And, you know, one of the things in the Bible and and like my wife and I use with each other is like, well, even the pagans can do that, right? You don't need the Holy spirit to do that, but we're to have the Holy spirit. And so we should be fundamentally different from others who don't have the Holy Spirit that we have. Yep. 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 Definitely. Um, We certainly need to not. There's so much to that um, that I. Yeah, we just we need to we need to do better. Right. So. Well, that's the, the good news is that yeah, God calls us to be renewed, ever ever renewed by the word of God. And we have the Holy Spirit who yep. is at work within us and within mm-hmm. the church um, bearing more fruit. Right. And, and I'm trying Definitely. to lean into this season of life, growing in holiness, growing in righteousness, growing in sanctification. And so we have God's promises that he who has begun a good work in us will bring it to completion. And so I think for believers in his churches, I think the encouragement in that is, well, we have the Holy Spirit who's seeking to do this work within us as believers, but also as the bride of Christ to remove any stains from us. And so, you know, in some sense, I think these, you know, this call to holiness, it doesn't have to be a negative discouraging thing. It can be a positive encouraging thing that the Holy Spirit is at work in believers and in the church, you know, doing this ongoing work of renewal, 
more in you know conformity with Christ and in obedience to the Word. As we wrap up this illuminating conversation with Pastor Dale Crow, we want to express our deepest gratitude for sharing his rich experiences in ministry. His 26 years of dedicated service are a testament to the resilience and passion required in his noble calling. In a world where burnout can cast shadows, Pastor Pro's commitment shines as a beacon of inspiration. So thank you for joining us on Coffee on the Couch, where we celebrate the remarkable stories of those who have shaped our communities through their unwavering dedication. Well, Chris, thank you for inviting me onto the podcast, and I very much enjoyed our conversation with each other. Well, folks, it's been a pleasure having Dale on the show. If you've gleaned any value from this episode or others, we humbly ask you to consider either of these options. Option A, subscribing for more content like this, or option B, making a financial commitment to our podcast, subsequently supporting the work done through Coffee on the Couch in either a monthly capacity or in an annual capacity. However, with that said, it's important to mention, we're currently looking for monthly subscribers, but either is welcome. And if you can't do one of those options, but you'd still like to support the platform, you can make a one-time donation to the podcast that'd be welcome as well. As we bid farewell on this edition of Positive News For You, we extend our gratitude to Chris from Coffee on the Couch for infusing our platform with optimism and thought-provoking conversations. We hope you enjoyed the inspiring stories shared today and encourage you to revisit our website for more uplifting content. Remember, every positive story has the power to brighten our day and inspire positive change. Until next time, stay uplifted and continue spreading the good vibes. Thank you for joining us on this journey of positivity. We hope you enjoyed the show. Goodbye for now.